I'd like to welcome you all once again. This is Thursday night for the Insight Meditation Center. Traditionally, we look at Thursday night as a little bit more casual, uh, informal time, really appropriate for people that are a little bit newer in their practice or uh, maybe want to kind of relate more uh, to the um, application of what we do. On Monday nights, we have speakers that go into a little bit more depth into the tradition that we pay attention to here. And on Sundays, we have uh, usually, uh, or actually Mondays and Sundays, we usually have talks by our resident teacher, Gil Fransdahl. And uh, Gil leads us on many wonderful journeys on those occasions. But tonight, we're going to be a little less intense, and I'd like to share some things from my practice that perhaps you can pick up on and relate to with your practice. So just as a beginning, I'd like to ask us all to internally answer this question. question is, in the past weeks or month, what are some of the highlights of my practice? If you're new to practice, it may be something you read or something you heard that triggered a thought for you. If you've been practicing for quite a while, maybe it's that you adjusted your practice. Maybe you're sitting a little more this year than you did last year. Or possibly you're doing mindfulness practice supplemented by loving kindness practice. Lots of ways that you could answer that. A highlight for me in my practice relates to what I see happening in the world around me now. I live in a wooded area of Palo Alto, and you wouldn't think that there'd be woods in Palo Alto, but there is a little corner of Barron Park where there's some big tall trees and we have donkeys that are just around the corner that Uh, bray in the morning and we have chickens and geese and ducks and turkeys. And so I I love kind of relating to the nature around me. And what I notice is that this is a time for cultivating. This is a time when it's still winter in terms of our growth patterns and it's time to plant those seeds. So I've been thinking in my practice about planting seeds. And the interesting thing to me about seeds, or one of the interesting things, is that you can plant them, but you can't force anything to happen. You can weed around the seeds, and you can till the soil, and you can fertilize it, and you can put water there, and make sure that the proper amount of sun and shade happen, but you can't really force anything to happen. And I think that is a good metaphor for me that 
I experience in my meditation practice. I would like to have a crystal clear mind that thinks of uh, meaningful and uh, in-depth poetry and uh, spiritual thoughts. And yet, my mind has a mind of its own. And it moves in uh, directions that not often are exactly the way I'd go. And so my meditation practice is kind of like cultivating. I'd like to flower into liberation. I'd like to have a liberated, open clarity. But in order to do that, I have to do the nurturing things rather than the controlling things. Last Saturday here, we had a wonderful presentation, a day-long presentation by a man named Andrew Olensky, who is the executive director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barry, Massachusetts. A scholar, practitioner, studied lots and lots, uh, gone into great depth in Buddhist psychology, and the topic was uh, Buddhist psychology and liberation, or the psychology of liberation. One of the things that he said that really captured my attention was talking about the word for liberation. In our tradition, we focus on what's called the way of the elders, or Theravadan Buddhism, the Buddhism that was the teachings of the man who lived 2,500 years ago. And then people fairly soon after that, uh, in terms of historic time, uh, three or 400 years. And during that time period, those teachings and that practice became well explained and understood and there grew some writing that we refer to as our scriptures. It's not in the sense of a Bible that has the word of God. It's scriptures that kind of represent the best of the thought at the time. The Buddha was very clear that what he was teaching was not a, uh, a, a dictum, a direction, a... Um, procedure that must be slavishly followed. What he was teaching were ideas and practices that we could take into our lives and experiment with. And so those traditional ideas that were existing up until one or 200 years BC became the Theravadan tradition. And About the time of the Common Era, there was a huge flowering of new directions for Buddhism. And a lot of what we generally know of as Buddhism, Zen Buddhism in particular, and uh, Tibetan Buddhism, grew as a, a, a new flowering or an extension. But the way of the elders, the Theravadan Buddhism, was preserved. 
and it lived in monasteries in Southeast Asia and has come down to us in a, a fairly um, clear and pure form. And so Andrew Olinsky was teaching about the, the psychology of that early period, the Theravadan way of the elders. And he said at that time, the texts were written in this language, Pali. Uh, it's now a dead language, not used anywhere. But uh, it is the language that the so-called scriptures were originally written in. The Pali word for liberation is Nibbana. Or Sanskrit, you might be familiar with Nirvana. Sanskrit and Pali are somewhat similar. So in the ancient text, they talked about Nibbana. And Andrew said, the interesting thing for our culture to notice is that Nibbana at that time was held as a verb. And he said, it's hard for us to imagine that because our culture is a noun-rich culture. We tend to think of things as being fixed, concrete, uh, tangible, and verbs link the nouns, but so much of our culture is about what things are, not what they're becoming. Or we're learning to be more oriented toward becoming. So his point was that Nibbana in its pure sense, is a verb, so that we don't elevate ourselves to a level of liberation and then stay there. But liberation is something that we do day by day. Every thought, every action, every gesture we make in our lives is part of a doing. And if we do it with a mindful approach and a clarity, it can be a liberating uh, way of living. Jack Cornfield, who's one of the great teachers in Western Vipassana Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism, uh, wrote a wonderful book called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. And... Uh, so I think in terms of my cultivating metaphor, after the cultivation, the flowering. Only Jack was talking about the, after the flowering, hey, you got to cultivate some more. So he uh, talks about people that he has met in his lifetime that were very high, uh, highly regarded people on a spiritual path who were thought of as being quite advanced and he says that their lives are characterized by this phrase, after the ecstasy, the laundry. So even the high ones, the exalted ones, are in process. They're they're liberating, they're not liberated. Each day is another step toward being liberating for them.
So Nibbana then is not so much a goal as a process that we can lend ourselves to. So tonight, <clears throat> the piece that I would like to focus on is what I call the cultivation of the mind or the inclining of the mind. Our teacher, Gil Fransdahl, has a phrase where he says, every thought inclines the mind. Every thought inclines the heart. So we, we have a way to set our course. As we think, so we become. When we think mindfully, when we think with a spaciousness and an awareness, then we can become as we choose. If we think and grab that thought and hang on to it and make it concrete and make it solid, it will lead us in a direction that we don't have choice about. As Chris mentioned, I work with an organization called CARA that provides grief support for people that have had a loss, either due to a death or, uh, in some cases, life-threatening illness, just the loss of the potential for life. And today, I had the amazing opportunity to work at a high school in San Francisco where, not last night, but, to, let's see, today is Thursday, Tuesday night, his body was discovered underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. He had gone to school on Tuesday morning, had been in school, didn't make it home that afternoon, and the next thing that his parents knew was that they had a call from the Marin Sheriff that his body was discovered under the Golden Gate Bridge. A hugely shocking experience. And I've had the opportunity to work with a number of organizations where there's been a suicide or even multiple suicides. And it's, it's the kind of event that, that forces us to say, why? Why? How can that be? 17-year-old young man, uh, intact family, professional parents, you know, so much to live for. How can that be? Why? And if you look into the research on what leads up to suicide, uh, even the absolute experts can't tell you why. And so what the message is, is that it's not so much about why that we'll understand the, the causes, the root causes for this. But having a spaciousness to hold a non-answer is what we're left with. So we won't be able to come up with a concrete answer. But our challenge as survivors 
is to hold a space to know the event, to know the suffering that the mother and the father have, that the friends have, and to know that there there really is no why. In other words, it's like planting that seed. The why would give us control, or at least the illusion of control, if we could come up with a why, just as I plant the seed. So my message to the teachers and the staff today was leave the analysis, let go of the why, and create an opening where this can be held and where we can all be held with what we're feeling, just as we are. And so one of the really effective things that happened was that students got out some big white sheets of paper and paints and filled trays with the paints. And students came along and finger painted. And the, the act of placing hands in colors and then colors on paper and moving, using your body to move the colors and so forth, had a whole room filled with people that were in some way taking the intense emotional feelings that they had inside and putting them down onto the paper. At some point, those people will be able to get together and have conversations. What, what can we do to be there for each other so we stay connected? But today, it was too fresh and too raw. And so it was paint smeared on paper. One of my favorite poets is Walt Whitman. Whitman lived at a time when slavery was a huge, huge concern. He was actually born in uh, the early 1800s, I think it was 1809, in the South. And at that time, slavery was, was considered to be part of the economy. It was the way we lived. It's like a fish swimming in water doesn't realize that it's swimming in this water. It doesn't know the medium that it's in. At that time, it was just assumed. The French Revolution in 1789 was the first systematic declaration by a society that slavery is not acceptable in our society. And the uh, crazy so-called people who declared that were soon put in jail and uh, the, the old system came back again. But the idea was there and decade by decade, more and more and more people began to realize that slavery was not acceptable. And by the mid-1800s, when Walt Whitman began publishing his poetry, uh, we had a large movement in this country that was conducted by people that were called abolitionists. It's interesting thinking about the word abolitionist. Uh, it wasn't a person that was speaking about freedom. It wasn't a, a freedom speaker. It was an abolitionist. Uh, 
So you know who made up that term. It wasn't the, the speaker himself. It was people speaking about the person. These abolitionists were stoned and derided and disrespected and uh, weren't given uh, respect in our society. <coughs> but more and more and more and more, the inclination of minds, people's minds began to incline toward all having the right to be liberated. One of his poems, one of Whitman's poems that I think speaks a lot about our Vipassana mental men, um, mindfulness process is a poem that's called Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. <clears throat> it's a poem that he wrote about an area of the Chesapeake Bay called Paumanuk. And when he was a child, he would walk along the shores. And then when he was a man, he came back to walk along the shores of Pamanic. And one day he noticed a bird calling. And the bird was calling and calling and calling. The next day when Whitman came back, calling, calling. And he realized that the bird had lost its mate. And that a storm had probably swept the mate out to sea. And so he wrote this beautiful poem about this endless calling, this process that is so driven, so uh, intensely ingrained in the bird. And then he related it to himself, and I'm going to... Oh, here it is. I'm going to read just a little out of this. This is from the Leaves of Grass as of 1891-92. Uh, he published his collected poems about five times in his lifetime. Each time it had different poems. The older poems were changed, but he called every one of them Leaves of Grass. <clears throat> so this is a later Leaves of Grass. So he's noticed the bird and he's heard the sound. Out of the cradle, endlessly rocking, out of the mocking bird's throat, the musical shuttle, over the sterile sands in the fields beyond where the child, heaving his bed, wandered alone, bareheaded, barefoot, down down from the shower, the mystic play of the shadows, twining and twisting as if they were alive. Out of the patches, out of the briars and the blackberries, from the memories of the bird that chanted to me. From your memories, brother, from the fitful restings and the failings I heard. He went to visit his brother in the Civil War. And his beloved brother had been wounded in one of the battles of the Civil War. And so from walking along the shore and hearing a bird call, 
he realizes this, this kind of lifelike quality that the bird is expressing is the same quality that he has. Calling to his brother, oh brother, fitful, restive cry that goes to the brother. So out of the cradle endlessly rocking, out of the mind endlessly searching. There's a Buddhist teaching that says, bow to your mind for it seeks to protect you. I, I cherish that. My mind sometimes acts in ways that I don't want to bow to. I'd rather not honor the thoughts that I'm not particularly proud of or that distract me from where I would really like to be, a restful, peaceful place. But my mind has come to me from generations of protection, wanting to find something that keeps me safe keeps me nourished. The inclination of the mind is what, what, what I'm left with in my practice. My seed metaphor and my mindfulness meditation, parallel experiences, There's an endless quality, a relentless quality. What I'm left with is creating a space that the, the endless calling, the endless searching can be. And I can have a peace around it. I had an experience when I was back in Barrie, Massachusetts doing a long meditation retreat. The retreat lasted from September through the week just before Christmas in December. And about halfway through was hunting season. And so all day long I'd sit. And by the time hunting season had started, I thought I had a... uh, I thought I had some progress, that I I really could settle, I really could be still. And then I would hear a shot, and a cascade of images would happen for me. I'd think of the deer that was being pursued. I'd think of the deer's offspring that maybe had no more parents. I think of the hunter carrying the dead deer on his shoulders with a a sense of whatever victory that that had for him. And I think about this process, this whole um, process of violence that our culture has perpetuated generation after generation. 
And for weeks, I, every shot that happened, I would be triggered by this. And we had a way of communicating. For that, Let me just see the hands of those that have been on a, a longish retreat, say a, a retreat of a week or so. A few folks. So you're familiar with the way you communicate. It's a, retreats are silent. But if you need something or if somebody needs you, you can make a note and put it on a bulletin board and put the person's name on the bulletin board. And so when the deer hunting started and my mind was inclined so much toward the suffering of the deer, I uh, started sending notes to the manager of the retreat. Is there no way that we can stop this? Can't we call the mayor? Can't we, you know, what, what, what can be done? And uh, I would get notes back. Be still. Meditate. Be still. Meditate. And so eventually, uh, the hunting continued and I was... I had the physical experience of sitting and having enough space around me that hunting can go on and I still could be still. I, I, I could continue my uh, peaceful, non-hunting-oriented place in the midst of it. It was a real lesson for me. Again, the attempting to control, you know, get the, get the local town council to outlaw hunting or something like that. So rather than changing the external world, I had really no tools to do that at that time. I could, I could find a way to rest in the midst of it. There was a, a, a list that was placed on the bulletin board after I had sent, oh, maybe eight or ten of these notes that came from the Vipassa, or the uh, Theravadan scriptures that I want to share with you. It's a list that comes from one of the suttas Sutta is a, like a chapter, and it's called the uh, Topics of Conversation Sutta. And it is a teaching that uh, came from ancient times about those topics of conversation that are beneficial and worthwhile, um, nurturing to focus our attention on and those topics of conversation that aren't, with the reasoning being that as you incline your mind to talk about a topic of conversation, you begin creating something. You begin creating a solidity. And you should make sure that the topics then lead you in the direction you want to go. As you think, so you act. As you act, so you develop the habit. So as you develop habits, so you create a destiny. 
So the teaching <coughs> says these are the things that are not necessarily beneficial to think about, and so probably a waste of time. In the wording that, as it was translated, these are called bestial topics of conversation. And the image is that the Buddha came along to a gathering, and the gathering was chattering away. Uh, these were the bhikkhus, the monks. And the chattering was about these bestial topics of conversation. And the Buddha listened for a little bit, and he said, you sound like animals. You are creating nothing of value. You are not inclining your minds toward that which will benefit you. So here are the bestial topics of conversation. Kings, ministers of state, armies, battles, food and drink, furniture, garlands and scents, vehicles. I love the vehicles. Uh, even 2,500 years ago, I, I can see guys getting together and, you know, talking about that, you know, that hot new chariot, you know. It's a <laughs> Towns and cities. Tales of oddities. Talks of the dead. Talks of the creation of the world and of the sea. Talk about whether things exist or not. And talk about the gossip of the street and the well. So I think we could probably all add a few things to that topic list. Things that don't incline us in a direction where there's wholesome response, <clears throat> wholesome results. So balancing that, the teaching are the ten topics which are proper conversation which incline the mind to move in the direction of freedom. So he says, having a few wants. So in other words, living simply. That's a topic of conversation that is beneficial. Contentment. Seclusion. Non-entanglement, persistence, virtue, concentration, discernment, release, and the knowledge and vision of release. So think back about your conversations for the last week or two and think about release and the knowledge of, and vision of release. So one of the things I cherish about coming to IMC is that you have these odd sorts of conversations that um, you don't have elsewhere. There's a sense that this living simply does help us incline our minds. 
that helps us move in the direction of more liberation, more spaciousness. Concentration. Discernment. So I'd like to finish what I'm saying by sharing a, uh, a short piece of writing that to me evokes the free, open space that we can move in as we become liberated, as our minds incline in the direction that gives freedom and openness. So this is from a 10th century yogi. Return to your natural state without effort or distraction. Know the way of such relaxation, fortunate ones. Neither giving nor taking. Neither for nor against. Leave your mind at rest. With the perceptions remain unconcerned. The great way is a mind open to everything, which clings to nothing, which fixates nowhere, radiant and stainless, rest in the unmoved, uncreated, and spontaneous. So just as we cultivate seeds... Let us cultivate minds. Let us cultivate the mind that we have that seeks to free us and seeks our safety. Let us cultivate it by having nurturing, open space to be just as we are and to see our true spontaneous nature in that. So our tradition on Thursday nights is to have a chance to hear from you. So I'd like to go back to that original question that I asked. Looking back over the last several weeks or months, what are highlights? What are notable points in your practice? Something you discovered? something that seems to have a attention, a meaning for you. This is a chance where we can share our practices and learn and hear from others. We probably don't have a time for everybody to speak, but let's just begin and see where we get to. So who would share, who would begin to share something of your practice, a high point, something notable from the last several weeks or months? A low point. point. (laughs) Great. And uh, if you don't mind, uh, share your name first. You just wanted to make sure that a low point was acceptable. Okay, so high or low, you guys. High or low. 
So who will start us off? Okay, middle. High, lower, middle. Yeah, I feel like I'm uh, in the middle of a long passage through the laundry room. And uh, so it's definitely a middle point, but um, the high point aspect of it is that it's actually really interesting. So uh, I'm really encouraged by the fact that I'm, I'm not uh, discouraged and I'm still interested. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's my middle point. That's my, the high point of my middle, middle passage through the laundry these days. So moving on undiscouraged. Right. Just doing the laundry. That's the path. Doing the laundry. Doing the laundry. Right on. There's one back here. I think you got to speak up. It may... Okay. Can you hear me? A little bit? Okay. Um, I guess for me, I'm the low point. <laughs> You're talking about high and low. Um, I feel like I'm really, really at a very high point where things are going just right. And then now, in the last two weeks, it's been down to the bottom where I just feel depressed. and But not totally depressed, if you know what I mean. I'm not totally depressed, but I feel like I, I'm falling down. I've got to pull myself back up again. And so um, I guess for me, for my practice, if I can just stay up where I am and not go down any further, <laughs> that makes any sense. Um, being just being in touch with myself and being mindful and letting things just go in a natural path and not letting things uh, distract me or make me feel uncomfortable with my, what's happening in my life right now. It's very, very, do- very down. But um, I think um, I think just knowing that there's a way to move out of that path so that everything I'm doing. It's going down. It's going, to, it's going to come back up again. I know that it will because it usually does. It just has these high high points, and I'm hoping um, just coming here today is just really good for me. Just need, needing to hear that and knowing that there's a way to move out of that. Um, that's kind of where my path is. It's kind of strange because I was really at a high point for so long, and now <laughs> I've gone down again. But I won't let it because I'm not going to let it. That's my that's my goal for today. But just stay where I am and just be positive. And think good. I appreciate you sharing that because we live in a society that likes the high points and kind of either ignores or glosses over the low point. And I think that this young man that went off the Golden Gate Bridge probably, you know, he hit a low point and it seemed so low that there was no other options. And uh, I think it's a, it's a human tendency to want to be on the highs and avoid the lows. And uh, I like Jack Cornfield's phrase. He says, really, all you're asked to do is put your butt on the cushion and take what comes. <laughs> you know? It's that simple. We like the highs. We want to avoid the lows. But what really counts is the fact that we keep coming back. Just like you're saying, you, you show up it's hard. You show up. Ah, it's better. You show up. Ah, it's hard again. But you show up. Great. Thank you. Yeah, it was good. To, it's good to hear that. Well, I can say something about my practice. I don't know if it's 
very interesting or what. But anyway, or high or low even. Um, I've been noticing that sometimes, like in a group, it feels like like I'm in an ocean and I'm one of the, my breath is when, when a wave on the ocean. I can feel all the other people breathing and it's like I can feel it. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I think the idea is if you notice things like this, that you just notice and let it go. And then lately I've been noticing that I can feel my body breathing by itself, less that I'm controlling it, but that it's just doing its thing and I'm doing my thing separately. And um, I bought a timer today (laughs) or yesterday, and I think that's going to be very helpful because I'm always saying, am am I done yet? And uh, now I don't have to worry about it. (laughs) And I think that's a high point. a wonderful image this the image of the breath being something that we are all linked by we're all breathing or the breath is breathing us it's a a great image and most of the time we don't have to think about breathing anyway the breath does breathe us Um, mostly I have a (laughs) non-practice talk of the the breathing and the waves um, I feel carried by a group and the only place I can really practice is in a group um, so my practice is getting to the group <laughs> showing up um, And that's difficult after a stressful work day. And I've done a couple of day longs recently. I did, uh, I did a um, at the Spirit Rock a qigong and meditation day. And something physical like qigong really helps me uh, get the kinks out. <laughs> And I'm looking forward to using that and finding a a local group where I can start practicing some qigong and uh, um, maybe meditation as well. And maybe I should start with the yoga group here. Thank you. Thanks very much. So would you say that was high, low, or middle? High. Good. (laughs) okay well uh, that's about all the time we have for sharing thank you very much the great way is a mind open to everything which clings to nothing which fixates nowhere radiant and stainless resting unmoved uncreated and spontaneous. May the benefit of our practice here this evening radiate through our lives, our lives demonstrating clarity and freedom and bringing 
that liberation to our world.